Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a spoiler special podcast on Django Unchained, the new Quentin Tarantino film. Joining me in the Slate studio is Tanner Colby. Hi, Tanner. Hi, Dana. You are a sometime Slate contributor. Yes. You are also the author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange History of Racial Integration in America. That's correct. A book about why I don't know any black people. So, of course, I titled it Some of My Best Friends Are Black. And you were the one who wanted me to take you to Django Unchained. You were very eager to spoil this movie with me. I I was. I was. A, I'm a Tarantino fan. B, I've sort of gone through a baptism of fire of of America's racial history over the last few years researching my book. and, And I just thought it'd be fascinating. Uh, movie to review of Spoil and it was So are you an unambiguous Tarantino fan or are you like me a kind of divided and queasy Tarantino fan I'm I'm like 70-30 I'm like definitely a huge fan um, specifically Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs it's kind of a Wes Anderson effect where I fell in love with Rushmore and then each successive movie is tapered off a little bit. I have the bit. same thing with both filmmakers. Um, and with Terrence... Except with the exception of Fantastic Mr. Fox for Anderson, that, that there you go. again. There you go. Um, because he didn't have to deal with humans. Uh, and it was sort of the same thing here. Like, you know, every, every Tarantino movie I like a little less than the last one. There's things I loved about this one and then certain things that I didn't like about it. Namely, that I felt like it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was Inglorious Bastards Part 2, like, you know, set 70 years before. It kind of ended exactly the same. And right, right. Oh, well, you kind of stole my setup, essentially, right? right. This is this is taking the same formula that he used in, in, in Glorious Bastards. Let's take right. a historic injustice, a historic atrocity, right, and turn it into a shoot-em-up revenge fantasy. So right. I guess the question, where the question for me lies is, like, is that a morally questionable thing to do as a filmmaker? And if so, does that um, does that take away from the project as a whole in such a way that you can't appreciate it as a movie? Because, as with Inglorious Bastards, there were moments that I was dazzled by the filmmaking in this, absolutely dazzled. And there were also moments when I just wanted to run out of the theater because I just thought it was not only hard to watch because of all the violence, but really just kind of an, an icky project to take on. Well, I think it's it not so much a, a morally questionable problem, but just kind of a lazy problem. I, it was like he just wrote himself into the same quadrant that he had done before and the thing about Tarantino that makes him unique is that none of his movies are really like anything else like Inglorious Bastards and and other than the fact that they're all violent you know Kill Bill and Inglorious Bastards and and Jackie Brown are all very very different beasts and I felt like this one he just and I didn't feel that way until like maybe the last third where it was like oh this is going to end just like and it literally is like beat for beat the same ending as Inglorious Bastards. Oh, I want to get to how the ending is the same, Beat for Beat as Glorious Bastards, but first I think we have to set up the movie a little bit. Right. So we've got both of our reactions to it, right? I feel intensely good and intensely bad about this movie. I think if you like Tarantino and you're interested in Tarantino, you should see it. But I also feel like if Inglorious Bastards took you to a place that you don't want to go back again, this takes you even further into that zone. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, a place where torture is entertainment and kind of, you know, there's a lot of quid pro quo, let's watch the bad guy suffer kind of moments. Right. All right, right. so let's, let's set up the basic story of the movie here. So Django, the main character, Character played by well, I guess you could say he's the main character. He's one of the two main characters played by Jamie Fox. Is as the movie begins, a slave who's for sale. Right, we see him right. walking along in leg irons, being marched to his next destination, his next master. Um, but for the majority of the movie, he's a freed slave because right. Christoph Waltz, playing a German emigre uh, fake dentist guy pretending to be a traveling dentist, right. um, 
comes by in a cart with a little tooth. I love this this uh, this prop, right? We'll get to the tooth in a moment. I love the tooth. And uh, and essentially frees Django and makes him his own uh, co bounty hunter. Am I right. going too fast here? So they both yeah. become bounty hunters for the feds right. who are going out and, and looking for people who have presumably jumped bail or wanted for some crime and basically picking them off. As right. Christoph Waltz keeps pointing out, he can bring them back dead or alive. It's at his discretion, and he seems to always choose dead. Right. And and the, the reason he needs Django is because he's looking for three guys called the Brittle Brothers, and only Django knows what they look like because he's seen them in person because they're the guys who beat and branded his wife. They were overseers and, and at, a, at his over, last plantation. Overseers at his last plantation, right. So then Django is comes into the, the flesh trade of bounty hunting, as as it's called, and he realizes that, you know, Basically, he gets to kill white people for money, and that's pretty good by him, and uh, and it's a way to try and go and get his wife's freedom. So they sign up. They go, and they have their big adventures in the Western Mountains during the winter, which is a sort of a strange interlude. That It uh, is strange because it's rushed through quite quickly, right? There's a really elaborate setup of how they meet and mm-hmm. how they agree to become bounty hunters together, and Django telling the story of his, his wife, who he doesn't know where she is. She's played by Carrie Washington. She'll come into the movie later. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Christoph Waltz essentially taking pity, in part because the wife's name is Brunhilde, and he, he right. sort of takes that up with the Siegfried legend and decides that, you know, they're, they're, that Django is Siegfried and they're destined to rescue Brunhilde. So right. that's all set up quite elaborately. Then there's this really quick almost sort of jokey montage of the two of them you know making their way through the western mountains killing people set to a john denver song oh that's right we should talk about the music cues what was this what was the music during that scene i forget the name of the the exact john denver song but it was like one of the john denver was it rocky mountain high no it wasn't rocky mountain high but um after they decide to go off and be partners together they're riding through the snow killing people and and there's just this you know jokey john denver thing and there's a couple of like jarring you know anachronistic things like that is there's some hip-hop uh in the soundtrack and i think jamie fox actually did some of the tracks with rick ross from the from the uh the credits i saw and then also weird weirdly in some of the cameos i thought was actually brilliant the first one being tom wopat he plays the the federal marshal in this town where where they've come to collect a bounty on this this deadbeat sheriff and just the fact that Tom Wopat, who was like one of the Dukes of Hazard and rode around in the General Lee with the Confederate flag, and then he's showing up in this movie condemning slavery. I don't know if that was like a deliberate, you know, choice of casting for that textual reason, you know, but if it was, it was great. Yeah, and, that's something that Tarantino does really well is that yeah. sort of like joke casting, but always really finding the person who's going who's gonna to do it right, too. Right, exactly. And so I think he, he went and cast him. The only thing that would have made it better would be to have both Dukes of Hazard, you know, doing a co-cameo in the movie. Um, but I thought that was really great and a really good cameo. So then when things get sort of um, uh, dense again, plot-wise, when we're not just going through the mountains with a John Denver montage, is when they get to Candyland, which is where, which is the plantation in Mississippi, I think it's supposed to be, where the second right. half of the movie unfolds. About right. the second half. This is a, quite a long movie, by the yeah, way, we it should is. say. And but before they get to the plantation, though, and became... One, the first of three most disturbing scenes in movie history. Each one of them in succession was like the most disturbing thing I'd seen on the screen forever. And I'm not a person who gets squeamish at violence on, on, on camera. But when they first go to Greenville to meet Leonardo DiCaprio, who's the plantation owner that's going to take him to Candyland, um, the name of the plantation, uh, he's in this, you know, bordello you know, gentleman's club type thing, and he and some people are sitting with, you know, snifters of cognac watching a Mandingo fight, as it's called in the movie. These two black men, you know, being paid to 
not paid, but just sort of, you know, they Forced. own them. They fight them like, you know, like cockfighting or like dogs. And uh, it's it's a a great sort of subversion of or an illustration of what Southern society was, this sort of genteel refinement that has this horrible dehumanizing violence uh, as at its foundation, as its core. And they're just sitting there, you know, go, oh, you know, you know, laughing it up like they're watching a football game, and these two black guys, these two slaves, literally are just beating the shit out of each other in one of the most violent, viscerally violent things I've ever seen on screen. And, and essentially you, being egged into yeah. beating each other to death. As you know, I watched that through a lattice work of fingers. I barely saw any of that scene. It, we also, we should mention, happened to see this on the day the Newtown Massacred news broke. It was just right. a few hours later. And the combination of that news and then the intensity of that movie, some right. of the violent sh- scenes that I might have watched on a different day, I just completely blocked out. And the Mandingo wrestling was one of them. Right. And so, and this was the the our the first question on our mind when we walked out of the movie was, you know, I I felt viscerally this is more violent than Inglorious Bastards or anything else he'd done, but was it, or did you and I have that reaction because we're white people in America and it hit that you know button of you know we don't like to think about that this is what America was built on, but this is the reality of what America was built on. I don't know. I mean, that seems like a very, that's a very flattering to Quentin Tarantino kind of interpretation of mm-hmm. the, the queasiness of that scene. I mean, I actually, I'm sort of on the fence about that scene. On the one hand, it was undeniably effective and powerful, right? Mm-hmm. It, it turned your stomach. It was incredibly hard to watch, and it was it was in- incredibly brutal and sad. At the same time, I'm not sure that that scene wasn't turning us essentially into Calvin J. Candy, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, this kind of mustache-twirling bon vivant who's getting off on watching these two men beat each other to death. I just think that there's a moment when Tarantino's kind of pleasure in blood and gore and violence and and the Mm -hmm. extreme and making us experience the extreme really does start to turn into this, this voyeurism that's really distasteful. I think you can interpret it either way, and I think... I don't know. I'd, I'd be interesting to talk to a German person about how they felt about a glorious bastards, you know. Um, uh, but again, I don't know if it's exactly analogous because when it's as the movie turns and Django gets the upper hand on the plantation owners at the end, the violence is more cartoonish and less visceral. Like the the violence that is done to to the slaves in the film is just. You're right. And you're real. right. The final shootout, which we'll talk about, is more black exploitation violence. It's more like you know. You know, blood splurting, you know, in a definite movie-like spaghetti western kind of way. And he cartoonizes that violence, and but he makes this very real. And Yeah, it's with- very close up. It's one-on-one. It's two guys. I just – I don't know what point about racial violence is being made by having so many close-ups of guys bashing each other's head into the floor. Right. Okay, then the dog tearing apart right. is the next one, right? All right, so how do we get there? What is well, that the very next day? Well, like, the the next the, the premise of how they get Jamie Foxx onto the plantation is that there were certain black slave owners in the South, and they were you know reviled by 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 the by the other you know the black slaves, and so he, they disguise him as saying you're a black slaver, so you're going to be a slave owner who comes on this plantation with us. And Leonardo DiCaprio, in order to test his metal to see are you really somebody who who hates black people and is willing to own them he says well if i you know if i do anything to my slave you don't care and jamie fox jamie fox who really does care has to act like he doesn't and so he sets these rabid dogs onto his runaway slave right in front of jamie fox and in front of us and the dogs just tear the guy to pieces in in a 
very great. Again, in an incredibly graphic way. Right, which it isn't enough for Tarantino to just show us the guy being torn apart by dogs. He has subsequent flashbacks, a couple of them, I think, where people remember the guy being torn apart by dogs. So he just right. keeps on being sure to revisit that again and again. I right. mean, I guess I, it's, it's, it really is one of those things like you know it when you see it, right? Because I'm not trying to lay down some prudish line of saying you can show this much gore in the interest of, you know, making your point about racial violence, but not that much gore. There is right. no kind of X and Y that I can point to. I just have this feeling that right. Tarantino is like digging it in a way that's, that's really distasteful. I think it's both, maybe. I don't think it has to be an either or. I mean, you know, Tarantino is clearly a, what should we say, slightly unbalanced. He's not a normal human being. Um, but I think at the same time, the way he contrasted the violence with sort of this foppish, you know, image of the Southern uh, aristocracy, I think he was making a deliberate point and he also got his jollies in a weird way by making that point. Right. So if the audience gets their jollies too, though, as the audience did in, in Glorious Bastards, I don't know about this audience, it was hard for me to read it, mm-hmm. but but I just remember from the you know the reaction for months after Inglorious Bastards that people did get their jollies. They loved going to that movie as a kind of like stick it to the Nazis kind of movie. And I just wonder if this is going to have right. the same kind of stick it to the white people pleasure. Right. I don't know. I think it's different. I mean, Hitler for us has you know he he's become like almost this cartoon, right? I mean, he's just like he is evil. He is the embodiment of evil. Right. So if you can't hate Hitler, who can? If you, you can't hate? hate Hitler, who can you hate? Um, and I think the point. You know, this this is a larger point about, you know, white America is that, you know, white people are like, oh, I'm not a racist, but, you know, and that's that's the constant defense. And you it's easy to say that we aren't Calvin Candy, but we all then necessarily benefit from, you know, the advantage of the society that Calvin, the Calvin Candies of the world built 100 years ago. So, you know. How are we supposed to feel about it? I don't know. I think it's complicated. But Tarantino does provide the white audience member with a proxy. If you don't want to identify with Calvin Candy, you've got King Schultz, who's the Christoph Waltz character, who really is sort of the benevolent white man in the movie. I right. mean, he's, he's a complicated character because right. he also is sort of looking out for his own business interests at all times and is not necessarily on a mission to liberate. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear that he's disgusted by slavery, disgusted by Calvin Candy. Right. And we should get to, you know, the encounter right. that they have when they get to Ex- Candy's except plantation. Except that he's, he's willing to to buy Django when he needs him. And he says quite explicitly, I abhor slavery, but I'm not above using it for my own ends for this brief period of time. So, you know, he uses his leverage over Django and is ultimately very fair to Django and has a, has a you know, a, a very mutually sympathetic relationship with each other. Um, but, you know, he's not above using the, the position that, that he's in. Um and the third scene... Wait, hold on, it, Tanner. I'm going to interrupt you just for a minute for a word from our sponsor, and then we will get to the third horrifically violent scene. That's a good cliffhanger to keep people there through the through the sponsor message. So this late spoiler special podcast is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word audio content. They have over 100,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen on any device, including whatever you're listening to hear us on right now. Right now, Audible has a deal where you can get any free book from those 100,000 titles at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. And we have something picked out for fans of Django who might be listening to this podcast. Audible has Eric Foner's book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, narrated by Norman Dietz. It's an 18-hour history of the Civil War. So if you want to get into something a little bit more more serious and probably full of some more believable gore that's not quite so cartoonish, you can check out The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, along with 100,000 other titles. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. All right, so back to the third horrific event. Well, the third horrific scene, and probably the most uncomfortable, certainly for me as a as a man, was after after Django first tries to fight off uh, Candy and and 
and the other plantation owners. He's captured by some of the rednecks who run the plantation, and they string him up in a barn naked, and it's very upside down, upside down, very graphically naked. Uh, uh, in and they're going to castrate him, or cut his balls off, or you know whatever you want to, whatever they were going to do, and you know that was. Uh, you know, that was a pretty horrific statement about what slavery did to black men specifically. I mean, as far as black women, you had, you know, Carrie Washington being reduced to prostitution and being raped. Um, but, you know, sort of the, the total, total dehumanizing effect on slavery of you are just literally, you know, an animal or a slab of meat and we're going to, you know, castrate you as a punishment. It was somewhat um, unbelievable to me that they didn't just kill him straight out. I mean, human life is not valued very highly in the world of this movie, especially black human life. Right. And the fact that he would have gotten away with that and just been castrated, that there would have been any possibility of him living even for a short time. And then subsequently, he's sold and they're going to send him to this workhouse, right, to, to break up rocks for the rest of his life. Right. And once again, it seemed to me like, wouldn't he have just been such a danger at that point and regarded as so volatile that they would have just done away right. with him? Well, I think that's a movie contrivance is that we're going to contrive ways to keep him alive and would in any any other instance they would have just been killed um but to me what what i think of, when i think of that scene in particular i think about the fact that and this was sort of my main takeaway from the movie is you know tarantino wrote it for will smith originally i didn't know that yeah it was written specifically for will smith and he took the script to will smith and will smith thought about it and then he said no and then it went to Jamie Foxx. It's really hard to imagine Will Smith in that role to me. I just don't feel like he has that, that badass exploitation side. But to me, that's what would be perfect about it. Is you think the, he would have been better? I think, I think it would have been a better movie for the, for the reason that Will Smith's whole, you know, half of, you know, not his whole reason of being an actor, but like, a, you know, a lot of what he does, his role in American cinema is to tell white people that it's okay. You know, he's the black guy who's like, no, no, white people, you know, you're my pal and, and we're going to hang out. Completely. He's the crossover yeah. black star. Right. right. He's, he's, he's the crossover black star. Even in – I didn't see Men in Black 3, but, like, he goes back to the 1960s. It's a black man going around 1960s New York and, like, even then it's treated for light comedy, you know, during the era of segregation. Um, and so I, I think – and, again, maybe I'm giving Tarantino too much credit here, like you say. I think he wrote it specifically to subvert Will Smith's – movie star, you know, uh, persona. The same way, uh, the closest example to me was Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, where it was, you know, it took, you know, this disease of AIDS, which was a strange thing to most people, and it put the most affable, genial, likable face on AIDS and said, no, this is really what it's about. And you watched Tom Hanks, this beloved figure, die and in a way that you wouldn't have cared if it had been, you know, uh, some you know character actor that you didn't really know. And, you know, because Will Smith's persona as an actor is to tell white people that, you know, it's cool, we're cool, it's all good, to take that persona and say, no, it's really not okay. This is really, you know, this is the indignity and the dehumanization that was visited Yeah, upon. you're right, you're right. And what it would have been, actually, to have Will Smith in that role would have been the, that classic Tarantino casting against type, whoever would have thought of it, John Travolta right. in Pulp Fiction, John reviving Travolta his career. Pulp Fiction, whereas Jamie Foxx is already kind of the angry black man. I mean, that's it's kind of his stated persona. He did an interview with Vibe magazine uh, about this movie where he, you know, explains a lot of the problems he has with white people and, you know, the, the difficulty of... of uh, traveling in that world for him that you know I could very easily see Jamie Foxx certainly giving me a nasty look if if I said or did the wrong thing but you know I don't get the impression generally that Jamie Foxx is 
you know, wanted to hang out with me and be my best friend. Whereas Will Smith is very much that guy. And so I think, you know, if Will Smith had been our proxy in this world of witnessing this Mandingo fight, of witnessing dogs tearing these men apart and, and, and you know, almost being castrated, it would have been a completely different movie and I think maybe even a better movie. Hmm, that's hard to imagine. That's interesting. Well, as long as we're talking about this, this, this divide, right, between this sort of lovable black man, the angry black man, right, in right. cinema, what about the Samuel L. Jackson character? We haven't even gotten there yet. So what? when they get to Candyland, the Mississippi plantation, right, right, there's this guy that they call, I mean, the N-word is used constantly in this movie, right? They right. call him the house nigger. And he essentially, there's even a, a line at some point where they say the only thing worse than a house nigger is a slave, black is, is a black slaver, right? Right. So, the, so then there ends up being this showdown between the Jamie Foxx character and this Samuel L. Jackson, very Uncle Tom sort of character who, mm-hmm. who sticks to Leonardo DiCaprio like Lou, who's been basically his manservant since his birth, right. right? And who we're kind of supposed to, I guess, feel sorry for, but also despise. Right. And I think, I think honestly, if it, was, if it was written that way, Samuel L. Jackson is the badass, bad motherfucker black guy. And to have him playing the toadying Uncle Tom and to have Will Smith playing the black exploitation revenge character, that would have been reversing both both of their polarities and would have been, I think, you know, that much better. But I think, you know... The Samuel Jackson performance is pretty fascinating. I mean, it's it really is. comic. It's very, very kind of richly and deeply comic, but also right. very savage and cruel. Right, because as, as whenever he's in front of the white people, he's doing his, you know, yes, a... You know, comic, you know, step and fetch it uh, persona. But then whenever he's behind closed doors lording over the other black people on the plantation or in private with Leonardo DiCaprio, like you can tell he's all there. You know, and he's plotting, and he's watching everyone, and he's and he's the first person on. to notice that this supposed pair of, of slave traders that have come in to buy somebody for a Mandingo fight are actually mm-hmm. posing, and that they're there to rescue Kerry Washington. Right? He's right. the one who sees through the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So the whole plot turns on him being a race trader, and then of course the ultimate act of of revenge and comeuppance uh, for Django at the end is, you know. Killing Leonardo DiCaprio was not the climax of the movie. Killing the redneck, you know, lieutenants who who run the plantation for for DiCaprio is not the climax of the movie. Killing Samuel L. Jackson is the ultimate act of retribution. So it's it's so killing the race traitor is an even bigger uh, race traitor. You're saying traitor yeah. with a T? Yeah, tra- no, traitor with a T. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the last thing he does before blowing up the plantation and riding off into the darkness with Gary Washington is is you know first he kills DiCaprio, so first it's well not, it's Christoph Waltz who kills DiCaprio, right right Christoph Waltz Christoph Waltz kills DiCaprio and then essentially for no real reason right I mean they've just done the transaction they've bought Gary Washington they're about to leave and the real reason that he kills DiCaprio is just because he hates him so much right, right. DiCaprio insists on shaking his hand and says mm-hmm. a Southern gentleman always shakes hand and it, always shakes hands after a transaction's been performed. And that's a great suspenseful scene, I think, and a great um, a great managing of suspense by Tarantino. Right. So yeah. Christoph Waltz just shoots him right in the carnation in his buttonhole. Right. He goes down, right? And that's when the big bloodbath begins. Right. And and here's, here's another question I had. Why do you think Tarantino... In the beginning of the movie, there's two slave traders who are who are carrying who are transporting Django through the night, and Christoph Waltz comes along and kills them both. And one of those slave traders is played by James Remar, who uh, is just sort of a standard movie bad guy. He was uh, Richard on Sex and the City, and he was um, he's the dad on Dexter. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he's Dexter's dad on Showtime. And then when they show up back at the plantation, Leonardo DiCaprio has this sort of enforcer guy with him. And James Remar plays that guy too. Oh wow! See, I don't have the I don't have the character actor eye to know that that was the same guy. It was the same guy in both roles, and I'm my question is: Is there some symbolism behind that, or was it, or was it maybe that was something about spaghetti westerns and how they recast or use people in spaghetti westerns? It seems more likely it's something like that, right? Yeah, it's some Tarantino film reference that went over my head. I'm sure. Um, so yeah, I thought that was strange. Um, you know, before we get to that big bloodbath of the ending, though, I wanted to nod at one scene, one of the few scenes in the movie that is not over the top and doesn't have any violent act in it, and that I thought was was one of the most successful. That I thought was just one of the most successful t- scenes in, in terms of establishing character, and that's when Christoph Waltz invites Carrie Washington to his room at the plantation, right under the uh, mm-hmm. under the pretext that he's going to have sex with her. Basically, he wants her sent up as a comfort girl, right? And she's brought out of the hot box, which is this horrible, basically torture chamber for runaway slaves where she's been kept. And kind of prettied up and taken to his room. And they have this conversation in German because the idea is that she is named Brunhilde, as we know, right. right? She was brought up by German masters and she speaks a little German. And so he pretends like, oh, send me a comfort girl who speaks German. Then they're able to have a conversation that nobody else can hear. And then there's this big reveal where Jamie Foxx is standing behind a door. Christoph right. Waltz says, don't scream. You know, I'm going to open the door. And, and they're reunited. And I just thought that was a great scene and not a very typical Tarantino scene because it was sort of about character and tenderness. And I thought it really gave... It gave a lot of, of texture to what came afterward. Right. And I thought, I don't know, in that part, has Jamie Foxx ever really played a romantic lead before? I don't, you know, see him in that as much. And so I felt like, again, in that scene with him and Carrie Washington, I wanted to see more of, I wanted to see Will Smith in that part. I thought it would have been better. So let's get to the last 20 minutes or so of the movie, the very long, extended, multiple endings. This movie has the arguably four or five endings. Two. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, you were going to talk about how that, how that apes Inglorious Bastards almost structurally scene for scene. And I remember feeling also that Inglorious Bastards had too many endings. But So how do you see that parallelism going? Well, just once it became down, you know, when it was the sort of the suspenseful character interplay between DiCaprio and Samuel Jackson and Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz and they were sort of like trying to outwit each other and there was it was very suspenseful to see you know are they going to make it off the plantation alive and with you know with the goal of, of getting Kerry Washington safe. Right. Know, safe and there's a very, away. very long dinner scene, arguably too long. I think it was a little too long, but it did right. have a lot of that of that great psychological kind of fakery happening right. among all those characters. Right. And so once it becomes just basically a shootout, um, it, lo- it lost all that tension for me. A, I think it would have been less good on its own, but then also just because it was the exact same into Inglorious Bastards. Once all the Swiss watch pieces had, you know, come into place in Inglorious Bastards, then it was about just 10 minutes of bloodbath on the end. So you mean like the conflagration in the movie theater in Inglorious Bastards would be the equivalent of the plantation shootout? The plantation shootout. shootout here, yeah. It was just sort of the same thing uh, over again. And I felt like that beat had sort of been played. The best the best time it was played was the first time when Jamie Foxx, when they go to the Don Johnson's plantation— and uh, there's so many elements here to even begin to introduce. And they find the Brittle Brothers. And I read one thing about the movie that uh, Jamie Foxx tracks down one of these Brittle Brothers. And he turns around to the group of, you know, slaves that are behind him. He says, y'all want to see something? And then he just starts whipping the shit out of this guy. I mean, just, just you know. And what I read was on the, on the set, Tarantino didn't tell any of the black extras what was going to happen. And, you know, they'd been all in this character of, you know, 
dressing and acting like slaves with these white overseers around him for a couple of days, right? And then Jamie Foxx comes along and is like, y'all want to see something? And then just starts whipping the hell out of this guy. And that when the extras start cheering in the movie, they were cheering in real life. It was like sort of like, yeah, do it. You know, well. you know beat the shit out of that white guy. And and so by the time that was played out for the fifth time in, in the final climax, it was – we'd hit that note. Many, 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 many times, um, and I just felt like he he went there too often, and it was again just a retread of the same way he ended in Glorious, which I was disappointed from him. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff in that shootout that just it, it gets to me really absurd and cartoonish, and and whatever kind of um, moral satisfaction we felt just mm-hmm. just starts to dissipate. And right. I mean, part of that had to do with just like like just some of the torture elements in the killing, like killing someone really slowly, stringing up the dynamite. Shooting right. Samuel Jackson in the kneecaps. Although, actually, Samuel L. Jackson's death was surprisingly ungory, given given how much we had been led to hate that character and how right. much Jamie Foxx clearly hated him. Right. But, yeah, there's—and there's, then, well, I guess there's actually even a, another shootout after the shootout, right? Because there's the big plantation shootout, but Samuel L. Jackson doesn't die in that, the initial right. one. Then Jamie Foxx gets traded away and taken by these Australian traders, one of whom is played by Tarantino in this right. kind of jokey role. He and a few other slaves are being taken to this supposed work camp, right? Mm-hmm. But they never make it there because Django, being much smarter than any of the Australian guys, right. fools them into thinking that there's a, a bounty that they can go and get if they go back to Candyland. He essentially right. pulls an old handbill out of his pocket of some of the, the crooks that he was supposed to be catching with Christoph Waltz and says, these guys are at Candyland and you can go get them and collect the bounty. The three right. dumb Australians believe him and end up handing him a gun to hold while they're kind of making their plans. And he right. promptly blows them all away. Right. Right. Liberates the slaves, heads back to Candyland to get his wife, Carrie Washington, and then we have a chance for yet another gory shootout. And right. I did start to feel like the rhythm was kind of stuttering at this point. Yeah, it's like how many how many times are we going to go and kill all these guys um, when it could have been wrapped up, I think, in one shootout, really. What, what about the very, very ending, which is clearly a jokey kind of black exploitation moment where he literally rides away on, I think, a white horse with Carrie Washington, or they're both on horseback, I guess. So there's just this moment that the two of them essentially are sort of watching the, the, mm-hmm. the plantation house blow up, kissing in the moonlight and, and, and riding off together. I mean, did, did, did you get a sense a little bit that that was a way of putting a bow on the movie and just saying, like, now you can feel good about this? Like, that's how the end of Inglorious Bastards felt to me when Brad Pitt gets the swastika carved on his forehead. You know, that it was a little bit of a sense of like, hardy har, let's end on, you know, the bad guy looking like a fool and we can all go home feeling good. Right. I mean, I really didn't like the last, I would say, five minutes of the movie. Right. No. And she she like puts her fingers in her ears when when the house is about to dynamite in sort of a like a cute, sexy way. Yeah. Like a cute, sexy way. And and there's also some Christoph Waltz flashback action happening, like to throw in some sentiment. Right. Don't we see like some image of Christoph Waltz at that moment who's been dead now for 25 minutes? Yeah. They flash back to the mountains, to the, you know, the Rocky Mountain High period. And uh, Django had been practicing target practice on a snowman. And he, you know, oh, yeah, the snowman scene was kind of awesome, yeah. shooting up a snowman for target yeah. practice. Um, and, you know, Christoph Waltz looks at him sort of like wistfully like, you know, a mentor to a, a you know, a protege. Like, they, I, they'll call you the fastest gun of the South or something like the that. The snowman scene was great the first time around, but do we need to revisit it as the as the plantation burns in the last five minutes? That Those were just some of those moments that just seem like a few too many cherries on the Sunday. Yeah, there, there was you – know, too, too many cherries on Sunday is a good way of putting it because it, it felt like – you know, there were some brilliant comic moments that were just weird, like the tooth on top of, like, Christoph Waltz, he, he, his disguise as a bounty hunter is that he's a dentist, and he's going around on this horse and buggy with a with a big tooth on the end of a spring, which was a hysterical visual. 
and then the scene with um, the Klansmen all running around with bags on their heads. Oh, yeah, we forgot about that scene. Yeah, that scene was very funny. I was laughing yeah. away. But, like, did it belong in the same movie? I'm not sure. I think there are moments when Tarantino's kind of jokiness runs away with him, and he does scenes that are, you know, like the Pulp Fiction guys sitting around bullshitting in a funny way and kind of bitching at each other kind right. of scenes. And that's what that Ku Klux Klan scene is. Essentially, it's almost like an origin story for the Ku Klux Klan, right? A bunch of white racists are going to go out and lynch some black people. They're putting white bags over their heads, and they haven't even figured out how to get the bags right. So, like, right. the eye holes are in the wrong place and they right. can't see jonah hill is one of the one of the ku klux klan members which in and of itself sort of says you know we are in funny bro land right we are joking it's almost like, it was almost like a, a judd apatow moment because if jo- jonah hill shows up in the movie in a jokey part it's like aren't we in a judd apatow movie so it was kind of uneven in that way i felt and you know in pulp fiction and, and also too in inglorious bastards if i recall he's sort of uh the way he does things episodically you know with real you know time breaks uh, you know, he sort of tells you, okay, we're doing a, this humorous set piece and then we're going to go to a gory set piece. Whereas here, it just all sort of like rolled and jumbled together. Um, and so, yeah, it was really sort of uneven in that way. The parts that were brilliant were brilliant. And then parts of it you were just, why? And then parts of it were too much. And um, But, you know, he's a big, messy filmmaker. So Yeah, I mean, we haven't even sort of gotten into, but I think people who like Tarantino can imagine it. Like the visual and auditory brilliance of many parts of this movie. Like some of the music choices are just brilliantly funny and anachronistic, as you say, but anachronistic in a really smart way. Right. I think, you know, playing kind of gangster rap over somebody shooting up a plantation is just kind of an awesome idea. Right. But overall, knowing that, I mean, knowing the kind of bravura that, that Tarantino can demonstrate as a filmmaker and also what to me is sort of the emotional or moral or historical immaturity of his vision in some ways, would you send people to this movie in the end? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely worth seeing and it definitely, you know, challenges you to think. I mean, the fact that it's flawed doesn't take away from the fact that it's certainly more original than 90% of anything else that's out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it's, it's a complete vision, right? The idea that you're going to make this kind of like weird black exploitation parody about, about slavery in and of itself is an experiment worth worth watching. Right. And I think what what's good about it and maybe – it's a slight contrast to Lincoln, which I haven't seen yet, but you have, is that it's, you know, whereas Lincoln is sort of overly referential and genuflecting at the altar of, you know, the the sacredness of this chapter in American history, it's also important that we, you know, deconstruct it and treat it with irreverence and, and you know, and the fact that, you know, we have the courage to go there because it doesn't do us any good to put slavery, you know, in this you know, gauzy museum and look at it as part of the past. It's it's good, you know, certainly that a white filmmaker has the courage to go and take it apart and play with it uh, in ways that you might find disagreeable, uh, I think is a good thing. I'm very curious what black audiences are going to feel about this movie as well. I mean, I think at the very least they're going to get into, you know, some of the great performances and the great music. I just I just don't know about the historical vision in this movie, It's if it's going to bother other people the way it's bothered me. I think it will. I think... One of the one of the criticisms I've read about it uh, has a lot to do with Kerry Washington's role and how passive she is. And I mean, she really we haven't even talked about it. She, she's a damsel in distress. She's a damsel in distress. Say. She doesn't really do anything in the film. And no, but the idea of rather than than looking at slavery as a, as an institutional, you know, me, you know, crime against humanity, which it was, and look at it more of uh, you know a man trying to you know uh, going on a revenge fantasy, you know, trying to save a damsel in distress, kind of. Kind of gets away from what the real problem is. So, yeah, some people will definitely have a problem with, with the, the historical interpretation of it. But it's interesting nonetheless. Well, Tanner, thank you for coming in to discuss it. Let's spoil another movie soon. And excuse yes. excuse the fact that my voice is gradually disintegrating of as course. we speak.
Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.